welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I'll begin today a reading from Acts chapter 1. And in verse 15, I've titled today's message, Let Another Man Take His Office. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So what is provided here for us by Luke is an explanation for his readers about about how those who were numbered as 12 had now become 11. Peter recognizes a, a big problem with that number 11, as we'll soon uncover. And it's an urgent problem that must be remedied in the few days remaining before Pentecost. We know that the disciples had immersed themselves in the Hebrew Scriptures as of late. Uh, Ever since Jesus first appeared on the road to Emmaus, uh, to two men, where according to Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Of course, this continued over a period of about 40 days uh, as these apostles received their graduate education in Old Testament from Jesus. And we also know that the treachery and the apostasy of of their fallen comrade Judas, uh, that's also on their minds. It, It would have to be And as they're now in the upper room in prayer, they're patiently waiting just a few more days until the Holy Spirit comes. And they're trying to fill in the missing pieces. And taking a look around the room, a troubling piece is missing. His name's Judas. And Peter is the one who stands to announce to everyone It's concerning the fate of Judas. Don't be distressed. Don't don't be distraught with what happened. 
said, this is what the scripture has always stated. There would be one who would betray Messiah the prince and apostatize. Peter points to the Psalms written by King David as a source for his deposition. And when we look to verse 20, uh, both of these referenced Psalms, uh, they are Psalm 69 and particularly Psalm 109, both assure that this traitor, his homestead, uh, his family lineage, meaning his posterity, it will be cursed. It, it will be completely cut off from Israel. Now, in Old Testament Jewish thought, well, that in itself, that idea alone, for, for a family's lineage to be blotted out from Israel, the people of God, blotted out from the people of God, that is a profound curse. Perhaps, perhaps the worst curse. Imagine your life, your children, your family name blotted out from Christ. It is also Psalm 109, a, a clearly messianic psalm describing Israel's rejection of Christ, uh, even being facilitated by a wicked accuser. And it's, it speaks ultimately of Judas Iscariot in Psalm 109, verse 8, where it states, Let his days be few, and let another man take his office. In Psalm 109 and verse 4, a little earlier in that psalm, David wrote these prophetic words of Jesus. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. And then they appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. That's Judas. Speaks of his betrayal. It's a couple verses later when David writes, Let his days be few, and let another man take his office. Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, we remember that he there quoted King David in Psalm 41, saying, Even my close friend in whom I've trusted who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel up against me. Therefore, uh, we know Peter, probably even some of the others, uh, they have by the Spirit's prompting identified repeated predictions in the Old Testament uh, describing the betrayal by Judas. Uh, we haven't even made our way around to the one about the 30 shekels yet. And through these, these scriptural prophecies, uh, the Spirit has revealed to Peter that there, there absolutely has to be one added to restore their number to 12. In fact, next week, it'll be beginning in verse 21, uh, Peter is going to declare that it is absolutely necessary that they add one. Uh, the Greek term there, necessary, implies something that is obligatory. 
It has to happen. They must add another witness to Christ's resurrection, a 12th apostle. The church, through this passage, has virtually always recognized that Peter was the first leader to arise among the apostles, and he is going to be the first to speak on the day of Pentecost. He'll be first to preach Christ crucified, just as Jesus said, and upon this rock I will build my church. Of course, we recognize from Scripture uh, in the church that we are founded, the church is founded upon Peter's confession of Christ, uh, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not founded on Peter himself. Uh, That idea of Peter being the first pope, it's found nowhere in the Word of God. The church is founded on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's one of the the reasons Peter's name is first in the list, verse 13. And as you look through the Gospels, uh, Judas' name always appears last. There's There's a symbolism in the order of these lists. But surely Peter, he is the first to stand up and lead. He's a stand-up guy. He's the first to speak. Folks, and that matters. That matters. I've stated numerous times, even from this pulpit, Christ's church needs leaders. But there are a lot of contrasting ideas about what leadership means. I'm reading a good book uh, right now by Albert Moeller, and, and it's titled... The conviction to lead. And one of the foundational principles of Moeller's book is that the act of leading must involve speaking words that people must hear. It's not just speaking, rather they are facts being asserted as objective truth. They have to be true words and real words. Uh, They're words that have influence socially and ethically and economically, and they're all essential. Somebody has to say it. Moeller also laments how in modern day uh, people display little desire for leadership all around in our nation Uh, Instead, people expect management. For this reason, culture has broadly replaced leaders with managers. And it's because people aren't interested in being told objective truth anymore. Uh, Rather, they prefer to hear from a manager who they believe will make their problems go away. Miss... My fries arrived cold. I want to speak to a manager. Or our supply chain, it's severely backed up. We need somebody to address, somebody with the skills to address this problem with solutions. We need a supply chain manager. People want problem solvers. My student loan has become so bothersome. I'd like someone to solve my problem by making it go away. Will somebody else manage my problem? 
and people tend to elect managers to solve their problems, then they label them leaders. To solve issues from the border crisis to the national debt to, to taxation, whatever the topic is, people vote for public figures who promise to manage their problems for them. But mere managers and cis-molar are not leaders. Well, that, that is simple, profound, but, uh, but profound insight, isn't it? America lacks leadership. Moeller goes on to reveal this is a big problem in many churches today. They're hiring and they're ordaining church leaders based on their ability to manage problems. But leaders, though they may possess skills in managing problems, uh, they must by further, they must further by qualification possess a conviction to stand up and speak out, not to make people's problems go away. And these leaders must hold more than personal convictions, uh, of which most every person has some personal convictions. Uh, good leaders must possess convictions that align with objective scriptural truth, objectively moral truth. That means that their convictions are real. That they just didn't make them up on their own. Christian leaders are convicted of the eternal truths that are found in Scripture. Divine truths. They speak boldly about it. That is a non-negotiable quality for scriptural leadership. Friends, that, that is Peter. That is Peter. And he is going to let the truth fly on the day of Pentecost in the face of hostility not just a few days from now. And Peter's going to stand up. In fact, all of the other 11 are also going to become leaders. They are going to speak forth divine truth in a diversity of foreign languages that they'd never previously learned. But today, and for this group consist, consisting of about 120 persons, Peter uses Scripture to identify their immediate problem. It is simple, but it is brilliant. Every single one, get this, every single one of these 120 persons in the upper room, they have the same potential to look around and scan the room to see that somebody is missing. But someone, a leader, must identify the problem and speak out about it. We only have 11, and Scripture insists that we have 12. That number 12 for Peter, it's, it's not arbitrary. Not, not just a theological hunch that he feels something is wrong uh, or appears off, uh, though it is surely a hunch. Uh, no, Peter's declaration is more than that. Uh, his hunch is reinforced by a prophecy describing the betrayal of Christ, a prophecy that also contains this solution 
let another man take his office. Folks, Peter has insight. He has spiritual discernment. But he validates it. Here's the point. He validates it. He undergirds what he declares with Scripture. Scripture is the authority. Peter does not become the authority. He speaks up because Scripture speaks up. And with those who who are possessing a conviction that they want to lead, that is one foundational tenet of spiritual leadership. You must have discernment, but Scripture must say it, and you must repeat it. There are centuries that are separating us from this, this Jewish culture. We don't immediately assess that something is wrong. We don't, we don't recognize that something's wrong with 11. That, that 11 is not going to suffice in Israel. We don't know there has to be 12, uh, but there were 12 brothers who became the 12 tribes in Israel with whom God ratified the Old Covenant at Sinai. At the foot of the mountain, Moses erected 12 pillars. Uh, Joshua set up 12 stones in the, in the middle of the Jordan during the conquests. And folks, that, that symbolism is perpetual. It, it is repeated. It runs deep in this culture. The implication as Jesus traveled the countryside with 12 disciples is enormous. More enormous than we know. In fact, the the Pharisees probably even said to one another at some point saying, did you notice he's got 12 following him? Oh, the nerve of that guy. Who does he think he is? I would not doubt that today in ethnic Jewish communities, that 12 is still memorialized in many different ways. You go to those cultures, 12, 12, and 12. In fact, we're going to see 12, 12, and 12 in the book of Revelation as you look forward. Richard Longnecker, a theologian writing for the Expositor's Bible Commentary, makes the following statement that that I've heard this echoed amongst many theologians I've read. He states, quote, the twelvefold witness of twelve apostles was required if early Jewish Christianity was to represent itself to the Jewish nation as the culmination of Israel's hope and the true people of Israel's Messiah. The remnant theology of the Second Temple Judaism made it mandatory that any group claiming to be the righteous remnant of Israel that is, having responsibility for calling the nation to repentance and permeating it for God's glory, must represent itself not only in its proclamation, but also in its symbolism, unquote. In other words, the number must be 12. Jesus' twelve uh, selection of 12 apostles, it was not arbitrary. The number could not have been 11, nor can it become 13, as will be verified by 
the choice that Peter says in verse 23, the choice that they will have to make between two equally qualified candidates, Matthias and Joseph. Peter declares that one of these must occupy Judas's ministry and apostleship and become a witness with us to the resurrection. Let another man take his office. Not two. Thirteen would be unacceptable. There must be twelve. Twelve who will declare Jesus as Christ the Messiah, the hope of all Israel. They will do so at Pentecost in Jerusalem. To do, to do it with only eleven witnesses? Yeah, we just got eleven here. By the way, that, a number caused by one who is a traitor? To proclaim Christ as Savior with 11 witnesses, that, that would have been viewed laughable in Israel. Ha! <laughs> you got 11. And one of them quit. So Peter cites Scripture to insist that we must replace Judas. That's leadership. Steps up and said, this is what the Word of God clearly says. But there's more to the story. You ask, how much more? Oh, about 30 shekels more. Verse 18 describes it as his price of wickedness. And the following, it may first appear as remedial learning uh, to we who have been here the last few months, uh, present during our study through Haggai and then parts of Zechariah, as I referenced earlier. Uh, but, but this is important for others who have recently joined us to hear um, through the Old Testament prophets, you've got Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Haggai, and Zechariah, I said, said already. That's just to name a few. That, that is just a few of the prophets uh, who named a new covenant as being the long-sought-after promise of God in the Old Testament. A, a new covenant. God declared through Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So through the Old Testament prophets, God had repeatedly alerted Israel that this day was going to come. That I will be offering a new covenant to you. For centuries, it had been announced to Israel. And we know, verified by Hebrews 8 and verse 10, that, that this new covenant that was promised through Jeremiah, it was ratified at the cross at Calvary. When God's Son was punished and, and His blood was spilled for sins as the final Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a one-time sacrifice for all sins under the new covenant. Uh, and that, that marks the changing of covenants. Jesus was crucified because Israel had rejected him. They valued him not. No, wait a second. They valued him a little. 
embarrassingly little, according to the scripture reading which we read together earlier. It's Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 11 gives the prophecy of the doomed flock. It's when Israel and Judah were, were sent away by the shepherd to be slaughtered. God says, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. And during his prophetic revelation, Zechariah says, quote, I, I took two staffs and I pastured the flock. Now don't miss this. Not pastured the flock. He pastured the flock. That means God's flock has been put out to pasture. You say, well, what does that mean? I just happen to have had a dad who raised a thousand feeder lambs up in North Dakota. And we had a pasture where he would, in the summertime, when things got green, he would put them down in the pasture. Why? Fatten them up. For what? Slaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the act of pasturing the flock, not pastoring the flock, uh, at the right season of a green grass, you are fattening them up for slaughter. They get big and juicy. And Zechariah had two staffs, and these two staffs he gave them names. The one staff Zechariah called favor. That's representative of the Lord's favor. And the other he called union. That was referring to the unity of Israel's 12 tribes. And with the staffs, Zechariah saw in this revelation that, that he, he led the flock out to pasture to make them ready for slaughter, God's judgment. By the way, the prophecy with Zechariah was over 500 years before Christ. Plenty of warnings. Plenty of warnings for Israel. And Zechariah, in the text, says, I annihilated Israel's current three shepherds. A lot of speculation on who those shepherds are. Some believe them to be representative of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. I don't know for sure. But he said, I got red. Read of the other shepherds, scram. But next, the Lord changes his mind. Zechariah writes, Then I said, I will not pasture you. I, would, I just thought this morning, going through this one last time, I do not doubt that this prophecy from Zechariah is a major contributor to the reason that Israel killed Zechariah at the Temple Mount. They killed him. Matthew tells us between the altar and the temple, they slew this prophet Zechariah. I wouldn't doubt that this, this prophecy is one that got him in big trouble, at least contributed. He says, Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. 
oh, that is not a good sign. Next, Zechariah writes, I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, writes Zechariah, and thus the afflicted of the flock were watching me, uh, who were watching me realized that it was the word of God. What day? That's the question. What day, by the word of the Lord, was God's favor and his covenant broken with Israel? Death, annihilation, the cutting of the shepherd's staff into pieces. Folks, that signifies finality. That's, that's, a, that's amplifying, I quit. You cut up your tools. Of course, we know it was actually Israel who initially broke the covenant. It was a, it was a bilateral covenant. Israel had requirements that they had shirked for centuries. So Israel actually broke it originally. But the cutting of the shepherd's staff into pieces, the Lord is, by doing this, the Lord is just graphically indicating that I am done with them as their shepherd. This is one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews declares, with the giving of the new covenant, the old has been made obsolete. We've talked about that previously. Folks, this, this is important because some theologians do not believe that the old covenant is obsolete. You'll find it everywhere. But at what, pri what point precisely, what point in time was the Lord's favor removed and the covenant broken with Israel? Zechariah continues to tell us. Quote, I said to them, the them referring to Israel, and the following is, is, is the prophet Zechariah speaking on behalf of Judas. He's speaking words for Judas for the future. The following statement are, are words of Judas, and this is Zechariah speaking as a mouthpiece for him. Uh, these are the words of Judas. I said to Israel... If it's good in your sight, give me my wages. But if, ever, if not, never mind. This is dismissive. So they, Israel, weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them, threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Wow, what a prophecy. What a prophecy. Does anyone recall what occurred in the temple on the morning of Christ's crucifixion? It's recorded in Matthew chapter 27. It says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death, and they bound Him and they led him away, and they delivered him to Pilate, the governor. This is the choice that Israel had made. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus had been condemned, well, what did he do? It says he felt remorse 
and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? Never mind. See to that yourself. And Judas threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful to put them in the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. You don't get any more specific fulfillment than that. Zechariah's prophecy then of God cutting his staff to pieces and breaking his covenant with Israel is fulfilled on the morning that they handed over his own his only sinless son to die. What does Zechariah say next? He says, Then I cut in pieces my second staff, called Union, to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. God's favor and the, un- and the unity of ethnic Israel is severed when those 30 pieces of silver rang across the floor of the temple sanctuary. God heard those coins ring. That's the magnificent price by which they valued me. It's done. And in just a few more days, through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 12 men are going to declare that God has ratified a new covenant with Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, fulfilling Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel writes, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the new covenant. And the new covenant has to be announced by 12. Peter will declare in just a few days, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter's new reality. This is his new job description. That's the coward who had denied Christ three times. He wasn't a leader, but he becomes a leader. Not telling Israel what they wanted to hear, but telling them what they had to hear. That God has established a new covenant through the blood of his Son. Folks, at what price have you valued the sacrifice of Jesus? Have you valued him little? Or like God himself valued him as much? Finally, many people have believed that 
Luke himself included verses 18 and 19 for the benefit of, his, of what was a primarily Gentile audience for him. Um, those words, verses 18 and 19, probably weren't spoken by Peter. Uh, it's the reason some translations put them in parentheses. The description may have been included by Luke because many Gentile readers did not view suicide as heinous in their day. Unlike the Jews, Romans didn't see it as ethically perverse to, to decide to just check out. This is broadly because Romans did not believe that man was created in the image of Zeus. Not something they believed in. Nor that all human life has dignity and to be defended and to be preserved. The lives of the lowest in society in Rome didn't mean anything. Didn't mean anything. It's rather the Judeo and Christian views, the scriptural origin of life, that has historically caused the modern West to defend those who cannot defend themselves and to penalize murder in any of its, in its heinous forms, disgusting forms. The definition of murder includes harm inflicted on Self, self-inflicted murder. Uh, when death is forced upon another through murder, through a conflict, or when death is imposed upon those who are defenseless. The inherent dignity of all human life, of every human life, created in God's image, isn't something historically embraced in the East. Especially in places like India, historically... Uh, They've done many perverse things with humanity. Used to be, though they've outlawed it now because it's just unpalatable to countries that they do trade with, uh, but it used to be that the widow would be burned with the body of her husband who had died. they just burn her alive. They, they think you turn into a squirrel or something. It's that sad. This is important. Um... In Japan, suicide by a sword, it was, a, it was often viewed as a death of dignity, a death of honor and of courage for the samurai. Romans didn't generally have a problem with it. They, they didn't see suicide as necessarily honorable or, or dishonorable either way. And uh, this may be one of the reasons commentators suspect that, that Luke that Luke added the gore. He wanted his readers to immediately conclude that this, this was not dignified. There's nothing dignified about what he had done. He didn't just check out. Not that there's no morality attached to it. And this is important. Murder, it is not the unpardonable sin. Boy, but it, it's pretty difficult to repent of when self-inflicted. We know the destiny of Judas, about whom Jesus said, quote, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So though we know Judas felt some regret or he had some remorse, he never repented or trusted in Christ. If he would have gone on to heavenly bliss with Jesus, all his sins forgiven, uh, 
Christ would have never said it'd be better if that man had never been born. He'd be in heaven. I also do not believe that all who commit suicide are, are completely sane. That they completely have it together. So I would suggest that it is possible for a Christian to commit suicide. It's possible to have committed suicide uh, depending upon the situation and their mental state. But we can say for sure that murder, which is not the same as capital punishment, is a different classification in Scripture. We can say for certain that murder is never dignified. It is never justified in any form. The, the Bible is wholly, entirely against it. As 1 John 3.15 says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So murder is a sin that can and must be repented of. Folks, today we live in a murderous society. A murderous society. Human life means nothing to this culture. Something's changed. That was brought to me right before service. Conversation, something has changed. Murders, dozens occurring without investigation, without any real, real urgency to get them to stop. Folks, it was just this past week that the President of the United States, Joe Biden, stated that if his party maintains control in November, his first priority is going to be to codify Roe v. Wade as the law of the land in January. That's, the, that's your first priority? What has happened in this country? Murder is not the unpardonable sin. It's possible to repent. You know, Saul, he was breathing murderous threats against Christians when Christ, when Christ commandeered him on the road to Damascus. Breathing murderous threats. And what did God do? He turned Saul into something useful for his kingdom. He can turn anyone here into something useful for his kingdom. Statistics assure. They assure us a number of people here have either had an abortion or advised someone else to have one. Many here have. We have to show grace. We have to offer forgiveness of sins. That's not an empty offer. Jesus forgives. And the blood of Christ and the, God's grace, it's, it's more than abundant to cover all our sins, even those committed by me. Yours and mine. But Saul, who later became known as the Apostle Paul, wrote this in Romans chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. 
how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Therefore, it is not possible for any true Christian to defend, to recommend, to excuse any murder of any kind, especially for those who are most vulnerable in the womb. Scripture describes that which is in the womb as a child, as, as human life, has a dignity of human life. Scripture is not silent about it. I, I can show you places or I can send you references if you'd like to know. I'm not going to assume anything. Maybe you're just wanting to know for your own education for others. But Scripture is not silent about it and Christians are not either. A pastor, a very good pastor and theologian named Vody Bauckham, recently said in one of his videos, there, there is no such thing as a one-issue voter, single-issue voter. Um, that, that straw man does not exist. I, I would never insult anyone's intelligence by calling them a one-issue voter. Uh, like you, I vote on many different issues, many different schools, uh, budget, border, taxation, debt, national defense, uh, sanctity of life. I, we all vote on many different things, many different issues, freedom of religion, Second Amendment. Everybody is voting on multiple issues. Uh, but they're not all equal in priority on my list. Vody Bauckham suggests, and he successfully defends from Scripture, that all issues are important. But the Bible is clear that the image of God that is imprinted on every human being, cradle to grave, all the way up until the point of death, it is the supreme reflection of God's divinity that is present in all creation, your faces. The reflection of God all around us. An unregenerated man hates it and wants to kill it. Vody says, I am no single-issue voter, but if I were forced to, to choose to land on any one single issue being most important, he says, the image of God and the sanctity of life is it. Any proposal that we should increase, that we should sanction, that we should codify, that, that even permit any kind of murder in society is monstrous. It's monstrous. For any such politicians, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. For any such politicians who speak to advance such grotesque behavior, regardless of their other positions they hold, they are in no way fit for public office. I can assure you they are not Christian, nor are their supporters. Christians don't pursue that. This past Wednesday night, our lesson on family night made it soberingly clear. Soberingly clear. Hell is very real. It is very real. And it is the destiny of everyone who resists or rejects the Lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. 
for any such politician, again, whatever their origin is, whatever their background is, uh, I only have one thing to declare. Let his days be few and let another man take his office. Let's pray.